Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 36 years, we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming events can be found at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Frank Bruni is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. His columns appear every Sunday and Wednesday and cover a broad range of topics, from American politics to higher education, gay rights, popular culture, and more. He started his career at the New York Post and then moved to the Detroit Free Press. He joined the New York Times in 1995 and has served as a White House correspondent, chief restaurant critic, staff writer for the Times Magazine, and the Rome Bureau Chief. He's a best-selling author whose books include Ambling into History, a chronicle of George W. Bush's first presidential campaign. His own memoir, Born Round, which was published in 2009, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, an examination of the college admissions process, and his latest book, A Meatloaf in Every Oven. <laughs> Co-authored with his Times colleague, Jennifer Steinhauer. Mr. Bruni is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and of Columbia University School of Journalism. Today, with his usual incisive and thoughtful perspective, he will share his reflections on the age of misinformation, how changes in media are challenging our democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Frank Bruni. He had to mention the meatloaf book. Um, I, uh, I hate to do this, but I just have to make one correction to the introduction. I am not an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. I'm an op-ed columnist for the failing New York Times. So. Um, and I actually prefer not to think of myself Sorry? Uh, as an op-ed columnist, but, um, but another term came along recently that I quite like. I'm an enemy of the American people. <laughs> an enemy of the American people with really good meatloaf recipes. So uh, if you don't believe me, you can just ask Donald Trump. But before you ask Donald Trump, President Trump, travel back with me to Tuesday, November 22nd, a day that stands out vividly in my mind. Does anybody know what happened on Tuesday, November 22nd? That was the day that Donald Trump, as president-elect, came to visit us at the New York Times. About two dozen of us, a mix of opinion writers and news writers. It was his first visit to the Times as president-elect, and I think it's his last visit to the Times to date. <laughs> um, and it was attended by all the customary Trump drama, by which, of course, I mean a bevy of impassioned and inaccurate tweets. Uh, many days beforehand, he had agreed to this hour-long on-the-record conversation with about two dozen of us, but less than 24 hours in advance of the meeting, he somehow decided that we'd invented this arrangement, that we'd changed the terms on him, and he announced on Twitter that he wouldn't be coming. This, for those of you who don't remember, was tweet number one from the morning of the appointed meeting. I cancel today's meeting with the failing at NY Times when the terms and conditions of the meeting were changed at the last minute. Not nice. <laughs> also, as it happens, not true. <laughs> Here's tweet number two from that fateful morning. Perhaps a new meeting will be set up with the at New York Times. For some reason, we lost the failing in this tweet. In the meantime, they continue to cover me inaccurately and with a nasty tone. Nasty, mind you. Uh, he likes that adjective. Just ask a certain nasty woman who ran against him in 2016. 
And this was tweet number three. The failing at New York Times just announced that complaints about them are at a 15-year high. I can fully understand that, but why announce? Um, I don't know, because we believe in transparency and the truth, <laughs> unlike some denizens of the White House. Um, the point is that he did end up coming to that meeting because the Times hadn't changed the terms, and someone in Trump's circle of advisors finally persuaded him of that. He came, he circled the conference table so he could shake everybody's hand, offering us pleasantries. And in the meeting it itself, he went beyond those pleasantries. He said this, and I'm quoting him verbatim, the Times is a great, great American jewel, a world jewel, and I hope we can all get along. We're looking for the same thing, and I hope we can all get along well. We are not getting along so well. <laughs> More important, it has become clear that we are not all looking for the same thing, because we at the Times, for all of our many imperfections, really do care about accountability, facts, and truth. And thank you. And our president, I'm sorry to say, cares about marketing, myth, and ratings. And here we are. So what happened? Well, we didn't genuflect before him. We didn't nod when he claimed, without evidence, that Hillary Clinton had benefited from millions of illegal votes, or when he asserted, without proof, that Barack Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. We challenged him, and we continue to challenge him, to confront him. We don't let him weave whatever self-justifying, self-mythologizing, self-martyring narrative he chooses to. And so he is on a mission, make no mistake about this, to delegitimize us so that he can get away with whatever fantastical complaint or boast he wants to, and so that he can evade responsibility. He seeks to delegitimize us not merely by impugning our motives and denying our accuracy, but by trying to take objective facts out of the equation. Our president isn't interested in using concrete information to win the argument. He's interested in using bluster to make the sale. Brett Stevens, a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Wall Street Journal, recently put it this way. He said that as far as Trump is concerned, and by the way, I should say Brett Stevens is a conservative columnist. He said that as far as Trump is concerned, truth is what you can get away with. If you can sell condos by claiming your building is 90% occupied when it's only 20% occupied, well then, it's 90% occupied. If you can convince a sufficient number of people that you really did win the popular vote, or that your inauguration crowds were the biggest ever, well then, what does statistical data and aerial photographs matter? Jay Rosen, a professor of journalism at New York University and the author of its blog, Press Think, recently wrote, for a free press as a check on power, this is the darkest time in American history since World War I, when there was massive censorship and suppression of dissent. Rosen was alluding to an unsavory smorgasbord of developments, including Trump's banning of some news organizations from his campaign events, his expressed wish that libel laws be loosened, uh, and his habit of using the bully pulpit and Twitter to single out and vilify particular news organizations and even individual journalists. But the two flamboyant twists that stand out most vividly right now are fake news and alternative facts. They're the real head scratchers, the jaw droppers. But as mesmerized as we are all by them, I don't think we spend enough time recognizing that they only matter and only have currency because our changed media landscape is the soil in which they grow. Fake news wouldn't be able to lay down roots, and alternative facts wouldn't flower if there weren't all these tiny, ideologically peculiar patches of land that Americans have created for themselves and fenced off from countervailing influences. A few years ago, the movie director Steven Soderbergh wrote something very interesting about a trip that he took, a flight from New York to California. He wrote about something he observed on that flight, the very peculiar way in which a fellow passenger was using his iPad. That passenger wasn't watching a TV show or a movie. He was carefully watching selected bits of movies. What he's done, Soderbergh wrote, is he's loaded in half a dozen sort of action extravaganzas, and he's watching each of the action sequences. 
Soderbergh continued, this guy's flight is going to be five and a half hours of just mayhem porn. Soderbergh was using that fact to lament the vanishing appreciation for character development and storytelling. But I think what he witnessed is even more reflective of something else, how modern technology allows us to edit the world into one tiny selective experience, one sustained emotion, and to marinate in it as never before. Think about the way many of us listen to music today on Pandora, on Spotify, on other similar services. We are allowed, in fact, we're encouraged to expand our playlist with new songs and bands that are just like the old songs and bands. Sophisticated algorithms shepherd us to anagrams of what we've already experienced, what we already know. They don't really expand us, they narrow us. And it's the same with movies or TV series on Netflix or with books on Amazon. The recommendations we get are meant to keep each of us within our proven comfort zones, not to stray outside of those zones. This is one of the transcendent ironies of modern life. We've made these amazing breakthroughs in technology and communication. We have the internet and our portable devices and the cloud. But instead of taking advantage of the limitless variety that these advances can make available, we use them to collapse our worlds into a single manner of feeling, a single mode of being, and often a single method of thinking. And what is happening with culture is happening with the news. You pick what suits your tastes, and in this case, that means what validates and echoes and amplifies your existing beliefs, your established biases. You didn't used to be able to do this so easily and efficiently. When I was growing up, there were just a handful of television newscasts, and each tried to be somewhat general interest and to maintain some kind of objectivity and balance. The same went for the main newspapers and the main magazines, which were limited in number because to put one out, you had to have enough money to run the presses. But we now have hundreds of cable channels and thousands of blogs. The barrier for entry into the news market is almost non-existent. That's egalitarian, but it's also the engine for countless niche and boutique enterprises. And it's the bridge to a world in which you can, on the internet, be reading a dozen different news providers and believing that you're deeply informed when each of those providers is like the next song on your Pandora station, the next program in your Netflix queue. It's a sort of duplicate of all the others. And think about the way most people use social media. They follow the Twitter feeds of the people they agree with, and soon they encounter a blizzard of like-minded perspectives that give them ever more confidence in their own turning it into something harder and more strident. On Facebook, what they like and what they share today shapes what they'll see tomorrow, which means more of the same. In this manner, social media doesn't challenge you. It coddles you, protecting you from and enabling you to tune out anything that contradicts what you think you know. You become that passenger that Steven Soderbergh observed, except instead of marinating in what he called mayhem porn, you're marinating in the darkest possible take on your political opponents, in partisan vitriol, and even in conspiracy theories. You exist in what I once in a column called a customized cocoon, and it's precisely the kind of single flavor, one note environment in which fake news is least likely to be unmasked, in which alternative facts aren't going to be forced to joust with actual ones, and in which you'll most quickly lose the ability to relate to or see the possible validity of someone else's perspective. Because that perspective is thriving in its own separate cocoon. There's no overlap between yours and theirs. And democracy depends on overlap. I've been distressed about this and obsessed with it for four or five years now, and I, even I was late to the game because it was six years ago in 2011 that Eli Pariser, a former executive director of moveon.org, wrote the book, The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You. But lately I've noticed more and more people sounding this alarm. At the end of last year, David Remnick, the top editor of The New Yorker, wrote a long story based on exit interviews with Barack Obama and Obama's inner circle, all done right around and after election day. Remnick wrote, noted that both Obama and David Simas, who was the assistant to the president in charge of outreach, 
couldn't stop talking and thinking about a BuzzFeed story they'd read about fake news produced in Macedonia, the cradle of pro-Trump websites and hundreds of thousands of Facebook followers and pro-Trump hooey like a news dispatch about Pope Francis's endorsement of Donald Trump, which never happened. Such hooey was finding an audience, just as some of Trump's most provocative language and proposals were finding favor. And David Seamus chalked that up to the rise of the internet and the related decline in the power of institutions that were invested in binding people together rather than splintering them into interest groups. Here's what Seamus said to David Remnick. Until recently, religious institutions, academia, and media set out the parameters of acceptable discourse. Had Donald Trump said the things he said during the campaign eight years ago about banning Muslims, about Mexicans, about the disabled, about women, his Republican opponents, faith leaders, and academia would have denounced him and there would be no way around these voices. Seamus continued, now through Facebook and Twitter, you can get around them. There is social permission for this kind of discourse. Plus, through the same social media, you can find people who agree with you, who validate these thoughts and opinions. This creates a whole new permission structure, a sense of social affirmation for, once was, for what was once thought unthinkable. Obama himself told David Remnick that in our new media ecosystem, and these are the ex-president's words, everything is true and nothing is true. An explanation of climate change from a Nobel Prize winning physicist looks exactly the same on your Facebook feed as the denial of climate change by somebody on the Koch brothers' payroll. The capacity to disseminate misinformation, wild conspiracy theories, to, point, to paint the opposition in wildly negative light without any rebuttal, that has accelerated in ways that much more sharply polarize the electorate and make it very difficult to have a common conversation. About a month after the New Yorker published that article, the New York Times Sunday Magazine published one by Jonathan Mahler, who was reflecting on that bizarre incident at Comet, Pizza, and Pong in Washington, DC, which has been the subject of a bizarre internet conspiracy theory about some subterranean child sex ring beneath the restaurant. If you recall, a 28-year-old North Carolina man was arrested there after he'd driven 350 miles from home and showed up with a trove of weapons to liberate the children. The North Carolina man later explained to law enforcement officials that after he'd seen references to the abused children all over the internet, he decided to self-investigate, that was his term, and Mahler in his New York Times article noted, and I quote, that in today's morass of disinformation, the post-truth era, there's a radical new relationship between citizen and truth. Millions of people are abandoning traditional sources of information in favor of a do-it-yourself approach to fact-finding. What they are doing is not quite investigating, it is self-investigating. Proceeding from the assumption that the so-called experts are not to be trusted, self-investigators are pushed and pulled by the churn and memes of social media, an endless loop of echoes, reflections, and intentional lies. With only themselves and their appetites as a guide, they bypass any information that doesn't suit their predisposition and worldview. The self-investigator's media diet is like an endless breakfast buffet only without the guilt. Take what you want, leave what you don't. Mahler summarized our current predicament in this fashion. Somewhere along the way, the democratization of the flow of information became the democratization of the flow of disinformation. The distinction between fact and fiction was erased, creating a sprawling universe of competing claims, each of which Mahler wrote exists in one of the many closed information loops that people now inhabit. Just a week and a half ago, Jim Rutenberg, who is the New York Times' media columnist now, weighed in on all of this with his own take, his own conceit, and his own phraseology in a column headlined, The Choose Your Own News Adventure. He noted that Netflix was exploring new interactive, new interactive technology that would allow viewers to direct the plots of certain television shows. And he opined that this was, quote, in step with the national zeitgeist. 
After all, there are algorithms for streaming music services like Spotify, for Facebook's newsfeed, and for Netflix's own program menu, working to deliver just what you like while filtering out whatever might turn you off and send you away. Why not extend the idea to the plots of your favorite shows? Jim Rutenberg quoted Dan Wagner, a former Obama campaign data whiz, who told him, you used to be a consumer of reality, and now you're a designer of reality. But neither, <clears throat> but neither Rutenberg nor Wagner was speaking merely or even principally of entertainment. They were both talking about the news. And the following recent example was cited. If your media diet on, on a given week had been the morning show Fox and Friends, the website for Breitbart News, the tweets and posts of the Gateway Pundit, and the scattered commentary of Ann Coulter and Sean Hannity, you would have been certain not only that Obama and his, and his administration had wiretapped Trump during his campaign, but that a collection of ambiguous developments added up to proof of that. If you had a media diet with none of those ingredients in it, you'd come to a very, very different conclusion, as did James Comey. The New York Times itself is doing some tinkering, and luckily it's just tinkering, that bows to and incorporates this habit of filtering the world. Our public editor described the changes in a column just this past weekend, noting, by mid-year, the Times will begin an ambitious new effort to customize the delivery of news online by adjusting a reader's experience to accommodate individual interests. What readers see when they come to the Times will depend on factors like the specific subjects they are most interested in. Now, at least the Times understands the implications of this, and to that end, it's giving assurances that the newspaper's top editors will select a core of about 20 to 30 stories that will be easily visible to everyone. So why is that important? Well, the very first paragraph of the public editor's column summed this up well. I'll read it to you. Scholars of mass media long ago established the theory that part of a society's bond comes from the shared experience of consuming the same news. We shape our worldview, our opinions, however different they are from one another, after reading about and watching many of the same things. We gain a sense of community, however false or fleeting. A sense of community is one of journalism's most important missions, but increasingly it's in conflict with journalism's bottom line. It's in conflict with the changed media landscape. In fact, the headline of the public editor's column was this, a community of one, the Times gets tailored. And the sort of personalized news website that many news organizations are pursuing has an industry nickname, the Daily Me. Now dwell on that for a second, the daily me. What's happening to the daily us? To common purpose? What's happening to common ground? Amid all these Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and websites and cable channels, where is the public square? And without the public square and its mitigating influence on the wildest of conspiracy theories and the most partisan of passions, what happens to public discourse and to democracy? Let's take discourse first. It becomes an environment hospitable to all manner of ridiculousness because in a closed information loop or a filter bubble or a customized cocoon, that ridiculousness isn't as readily exposed. Obama signs executive order banning the Pledge of Allegiance in schools nationwide. Trump offering free one-way tickets to Africa and Mexico for those who want to leave America. ISIS leader calls for American Muslim voters to support Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump protester speaks out. I was paid $3,500 to protest Trump's rally. Barack Obama issued a statement for Kwanzaa but failed to issue one for Christmas. Those aren't just examples of actual fake news. That's an oxymoron for you, actual fake news. Those are... Those are examples of fake news that took off and reached hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, Donald Trump himself retweeted the Obama-Kwanzaa contention, which was false. These stories were all believed and may well have had an effect on the way people voted. 
I got a first glimpse of the currency of this stuff just a few days before the election in the swing state of Ohio as I sat in a breakfast room of a Hamptons Inn in Columbus. A table of people nearby discussed a story one of them had seen on her Facebook feed about how so many acquaintances of Hillary and Bill Clinton had died over the years in mysterious circumstances. <laughs> I looked over and the people at this table were primly dressed, they were calm in their demeanor, the woman who was saying this looked like a librarian. And they weren't talking about this Facebook story to say that it seemed preposterous. They were talking about it to say that they didn't understand why the rest of the media was suppressing it. That's what happens to our discourse in this changed media landscape. But what happens to our democracy? It becomes more tribal because people are experiencing entirely different customized realities. It sputters and it bogs down. I could direct you to how paralyzed Congress has been over recent years. I could direct you to any number of public opinion surveys that show that the antip antipathy that Americans feel for people on the other side of the partisan divide has intensified exponentially. You see and hear that antipathy in the way all of us, the media very much included, write and talk about one another in the caricatures that prevail, the basket of deplorables. That was the fruit of this tribalism. The situation we're in was captured hauntingly by some researchers who looked at survey results to the question of whether you'd be displeased if your son or daughter married outside of your political party. In 1960, just 5% of Republicans and 4% of Democrats answered yes to that question. By 2010, 50 years later, 49% of Republicans and 33% of Democrats said they'd be upset about that. That's an enormous increase over 50 years, and that's from 2010, before social media took off to the extent that it has since. I shudder to think what the results of that survey would be if it were repeated today. Those of us like me who work in news organizations like the New York Times that mean to serve a broad audience and aren't deliberately trying to capture a partisan crowd have an obligation. We need to tamp down the language of heroes versus villains, except when and where it's absolutely necessary. We need to highlight examples of constructive compromise and centrism. And I'd be happy, I'd be very happy to give you more of my thoughts on where we go wrong and where we could go right when we open this up for questions, which I'm looking forward to and which will happen in 60 seconds. <laughs> Maybe 65. But the re what I wanna say though, is the real hope for change and responsibility rests with all of you. You're the consumers of news because we can't tell you what to watch, what to click on, or what to read. That's your prerogative and it's a relished and important freedom. But you need to realize that if you're getting your information or your misinformation only within the narrowest of ideological zones, if you're constructing your own analog of mayhem porn, then you're not only closing yourself off, you're rewarding and perpetuating a news ecosystem in which strident partisan voices and, view and viewpoints are the predominant ones. You're fueling the tribalism. And here's the thing, more than ever, you have sway over that ecosystem. Among the changes technology has wrought is this. News providers know better than ever before, in real time, exactly what you're consuming. They're positioned to react quickly to that information. And in an era of uncertain profits, they're highly motivated to. Whatever you're consuming, they're going to give you more of. And you can change what they give you by changing your consumption patterns. With your own behavior, with your eyeballs and your clicks, you can push back at all of the trends I've just described. Or you and all of us can succumb to them and sit by as we in America drift ever further apart. But at some point, we may be so far apart that there's no longer any coming together. I'll stop there. I thank you for listening to me, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Frank Bruni. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicola Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister of Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is New York Times columnist Frank Bruni. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, 
the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the co-sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. We invite you to join us for our next forum on Tuesday, April 11th at noon, when the Reverend Otis Moss III, senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, the former home church of President Barack Obama, will explore the topic, Building the Beloved Community. Look for more information at westminsterforum.org. And now, Frank Bruni, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with your own sense of, of living in a bubble. Uh, the very critique you've, you've uh, offered us has been offered uh, about you in the New York Times and, and that certain section or segment of the media. How do you not contribute as a working journalist not to contribute, not to con uh, build up this bubble in which you exist? Um, well, I'm in an odd position in part because I'm an opinion columnist. So in fact, although I do, I have, although I have taken some steps in my own work and I want to take more steps in my own work um, to try not to perpetuate these bubbles and to try to push back at them, I'm in an odd position where I'm actually paid to say what I think in a, in a kind of, in, in a not necessarily partisan but subjective fashion. But what we as a newspaper need to do, and we know it, and we reflected greatly on this after the election, is we need to get out into the country, um, and we need to talk to all sorts of people and not just listen to each other, you know, in green rooms and on Twitter. Um, I sometimes honestly wish I could abolish Twitter, because I look on there and I see my fellow, my colleagues in the, in the news business, kind of um, out-snarking each other back and forth, kind of doing verbal pirouettes for one another, and that's all time lost to doing what you're really supposed to be doing in journalism, which is figuring out what's going on and listening to the voices of the people whom you cover. Um, I think the media... I think, I think the media um, realized some of this after the 2016 election. Um, I think we also realized that we've, we've talked a lot about and we've tried to make strides. We really tried genuinely to make strides toward diversity. But diversity isn't just of race, of ethnicity, of that sort of thing. It's diversity of backgrounds um, in ways that include, cla include class, in ways that include geography. And so it's my hope um, that news organizations, including my own, as they uh, tailor and build their staffs in the future as they hire. Um, keep in mind that kind of diversity and don't define it in only the most um, narrow and obvious ways. Talks like yours, one of our listeners says, are frequent on the left among the so-called urban elite. Are there similar discussions on the right? And if not, how can we uh, remedy that? I think there are many, I mean, the right is a, is a you know, part of the problem is even calling, is, is even using the term the right as if we're talking about some you know, very easily defined discrete entity. There are people whom, you would, who, whom, whom someone would say are to the right of center um, that have many, many different viewpoints that, that uh, stand or sit in many different places, distances from the center, um, and so I don't like the right as a term. I do think there are people of conservative disposition who are every bit as concerned um, as people of, of liberal disposition. Um, about uh, the inability of people in this country to talk to each other as opposed to shout at each other. Um, and yes, I think conversations like that happen. And I think it's really important to realize, you know, when people talk about the right, the left, and assume the left is somehow holier, that's usually what's behind that question. You know, let's not turn a blind eye to the illiberalism of the liberals on college campuses from coast to coast and some of the incidents we've seen there. I don't think that's what any of us want to see either, and I think that um, raises as many alarms as some of the stuff we see on the right. Here's a bit, bit of pushback for you. Why should we believe anything a Times columnist says when you all were so wrong about the 2016 election? Well, you shouldn't believe too credulously in anything any one columnist from any one news organization says. I mean, that's the point. You know, I mean, the point is, the point is the easiest thing to do in life is to hand your brain and your freedom over to someone else and say, I'm just going to buy what you tell me, whether that's a religious authority or whether that's some pundit on MSNBC. 
So do I want you to read me and hear me out and, 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 and decide for yourself if something I have to say has any sort of worth? Yeah, but I'd also like you to go to the realclearpolitics.com website where what they aggregate you know, are opinions and news analyses from across the political spectrum. I'd like you to read theweek.com, you know, where the way they approach news is they give you several short paragraphs of just the facts, the undisputed, no one will disagree facts, and then allow you, you know, to click on and go down different ideological or partisan holes, you know. Um, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to read me, absolutely. I have a mortgage to pay. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I want you to read a lot of people who disagree with me, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. What would happen, this is a strategy question, what would happen if all major media, including the Times, decided to stop covering, repeating, and featuring the tweets coming out of the White House? Um, I don't know the answer to that because I don't know that we should stop covering those tweets. I mean, this is a real, this is a difficult decision. It sounds right and it sounds great to say, we're not going to cover those tweets. But some of what, some of what our president most fervently believes um, and some of the things that best capture his thinking um, come in 140 characters. Um, and it would be a pretty radical departure to decide that a whole realm of presidential communication was no longer newsworthy and was off limits. Um, I think what we can do while covering those tweets um, is dispense quickly with the ones that are, um, are so patently ludicrous or are meant to be bait for us and to move on. I think they need to be recorded and noted and disparaged for the, if, if necessary um, for the sake of history. Um, but we are unfortunately, because it's in our commercial self-interest, turning them into 24, 48, 48 hour, 72 hour stories. So don't ignore them, but bring a sense of proportion um, to the attention that you show them. Our, our journalists who are concerned about uh, the, the tide of misinformation in the land, are journalists collaborating across various platforms to help stem that tide? I, I'm not sure they're collaborating across platforms, but I'm seeing more and more groups springing up, not enough of them, um, that are sort of trying to exalt the center and exalt compromise in, in a way that it's much easy, more easy to exalt, like, you know, a partisan viewpoint. Um, I think more and more people are becoming concerned with how seductive it is um, to simply, uh, you know, fall into a strident way of thinking, how easy it is to watch only MSNBC or only Fox News and, and not something else. Um, and I think you see a conversation uh, that's growing uh, amid groups like, um, like Purple Nation, No Labels. Um, the, the political strategist Matthew Dowd has a group whose name is eluding me right now. I mean, they're all trying to do the impossible, which is to make moderation as sexy as extremism. What, in your opinion, has caused the overwhelming lack of trust in the statements of experts today? Seemingly a mistrust of people who have studied and researched issues. This seems like a massive anti-intellectual movement, anti-education, anti-enlightenment. Well, there are a couple things. I mean, part of the fault lies with the self-appointed experts. You know, I mean, um, we, and, 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 with, and with those of us in the media, but particularly te te television, if you, if, you, if you turn on television news and you watch a lot of it, I mean, you will quickly notice that there are experts on there who really have expertise and other ones who are just wearing that label because they needed someone to sit in the chair for 10 minutes and fill 10 minutes of airtime. Um, so I think television, cable news programmers have some blame there. Um, but I also think the problem is the way the internet functions. If you are someone who, for example, um, believes that vaccines cause autism, you know, that is a viewpoint that has really accelerated and found a lot of soil and traction over recent years. You can get on the internet and see so much out there that you say, well, of course, um, this is true. Of course, you know, lots of people believe what I do. But what you see on the internet can often be a hall of mirrors. It doesn't take that large a tribe of believers to make a footprint online that feels like some critical mass movement. Um, but I think people do that sort of self-investigating that Jonathan Mahler wrote about, um, and they're so enamored of that power um, that they turn away from experts, but I also think experts have hurt their own cause by um, claiming expertise over things they really shouldn't, uh, by whoring themselves out you know, to too many news shows, and by seeming to have more of an ego and commercial interest than an interest in wisdom and the truth. Uh, you referred to commercial interest and your own paycheck. Uh, to what extent is a profit motive driving a news organization 
to uh, engage in the kind of uh, bubble creation that happens uh, in, in today's news market. I know the, the local paper, the Star Tribune, has seen subscriptions increase during this era. As have we, yeah. In the New York Times, that's true. So there's actually a profit motive, perhaps, behind some of the way the news is, is cast these days. No, absolutely, and that's why I said that, you know, uh, the bottom line uh, is in conflict with, what, with that mission of, of building a sense of community. I think what some news organizations try to do, I think and I hope with the New York Times, which is among, among the mo most responsible news organizations, I think what we try to do is find a happy medium. You know, um, we, we decide and we live, um, we decide and we accept that certain things that we do and must do are not in our economic interest in any kind of direct way. Um, it costs a lot of money to maintain the number of foreign bureaus that we do. It costs us a lot of money to maintain a Baghdad bureau for years and years longer than other news organizations did. And if you had, if you went to the Internal Times website that showed you clicks and metrics, you would notice that a lot of that foreign news is the least well-read thing in the newspaper. Um, we have not stopped providing it because we know that is central. Um, to our role in the democracy. So what the Times is doing, what it should do, what it must do, and the question is, will we keep the right proportion? Um, what it's doing is trying to make certain adjustments and concessions that will allow us to have enough revenue that we can keep doing all those things that aren't in and of themselves revenue generators. And it's a really tough balance to strike. I hope we're striking it correctly. Some other news, some other news organizations try less hard than we do, and we'll see how it all plays out. But again, a lot of power rests here with you who consume news. If you make a point of clicking on and spending time with the stuff that you know we should all be reading. That registers in real time. That all gets counted. I can, I can go to an internal Times website and find out how many people have clicked on a column I published six hours before. I can find out how much time they've spent with it. So you can shape the news you're getting more than ever before because of these technologies. Um, and I think we all need to think about that as we're consuming news, that we're not just satisfying you know, our own personal interests, but we are exerting an effect on the kind of news people are going to be getting, not just five years from now, but five months from now. That sometimes happens with my sermons, that kind of <laughs> feedback. Uh, one of our listeners says that they, they read the New York Times, they read MinPost, uh, watch MSNBC. Can you give us a good conservative news source to balance those kinds of uh, perspectives in the news. What, what do you read when you're looking for a, a balance? You know, I get, I mean, I, I read tons. I mean, I get, I get daily emails from the National Review um, because I want to know what they're saying. Um, I read the, uh, I think it's called the Washington Free Beacon. And I've got all this stuff bookmarked, so sometimes I forget even what it's called. But I also go to those sites that aggregate across the ideological spectrum. So I go to realclearpolitics.com, you know, which if you, if you look at the two lists they publish every day of links, it's really pretty assiduously proportioned so that you have some left, you have some extreme left, you have some center, you have right, you have extreme right. Um, and if you do that, um, I, I think you not only have some sense of what other people are saying so that you can have a different kind of conversation, but there are, notion, there are things that are being said by your tribe um, that turn out not to be true and that get unmasked a lot more quickly um, if you're not listening only to your tribe. Let's talk about education. You've written quite a bit on uh, the admission process for higher education. In your estimation, is there a link between what's going on in our education system today, say the struggle between public and private education, and uh, the, the admission process you speak of in higher education, a link between that and the misinformation that's being spread? Well, I would say, um, I mean, yes, but it's sort of circuitous and elaborate. But I mean, I'll, I'll say this, which is a kind of partial answer to that question. Um, I think that the admissions frenzy that I've, that I've bemoaned uh, at the length of an entire book and that I speak a lot about publicly and that I care a lot about, I think it has perverted the whole point of education. It's turned education into a... Um, into a brand, you know, it's something you acquire like a Prada bag. You know, you want to get into the most exclusive school because that is a boast and that is an act of self-definition that flatters you. Um, we have sent the message, um, both directly and inadvertently, to so many high schoolers in so many types of communities um, that they must get into a certain kind of school and in the service of that, they must construct a certain kind of high school transcript. And with all of that, we are teaching them that calculation matters more than passion. We're teaching them that, um, that 
that, that everything is packaging. Um, and to the extent that that corrodes the real point and the real kind of investigation and self-inquiry of education, yes, that has to be having an effect on the, on, on the altitude of our debate in American society, absolutely. Question about, about, about the history of the tribalism you've described that's so rampant in America today. Have, have uh, we seen this as a, a new phenomenon or have we always been uh, divided in this land? It's just now more evident that we have our, our separate bubbles. Well, it, it waxes and wanes. I mean, you can go back you know, centuries and you can see some, some, some stuff much uglier than anything we see today. But if you're talking about the sort of period since World War II, um, we are at a moment where the intensity of the, of the hatred and the distrust um, that one side feels for the other is at a sort of, I think it's at a sort of 50 year high. Um, and you, you can go if you, if you want to like um, uh, hunt around the internet after this or whatever. You know, Pew has done some, some research along these lines. Um, uh, a terrific uh, 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 professor at NYU, Jonathan Haidt, has written about this really well. That's H-A-I-D-T. Um, and there are all sorts of surveys where if you ask people how they feel about their political opponents, um, whether they think they have anything to say, the extent to which they distrust them, those measures you know, are, are much, much markedly different than they were 25 and 50 years ago. The, the marrying outside of your political party is just one that I plucked out because it's such a funny question. You know, to even ask the question, you know, if they married outside the party, you know, it sounds like the, you know, the Capulets and the... Um... <laughs> yes. Uh, what about geography? Does, does geography play uh, a role in the, in the bubblefication, if we can use that term, of America? Uh, we've got the coast, we've got the center of the country. Well, but... I'll tell you one way in which geography plays a term that doesn't get discuss discussed much. People aren't moving around as much as they used to. So in a national sense, geography plays a role because people are not moving around as much as they used to and, and because they're not, they're not kind of cross-pollinating as much as they used to. But even in a local sense, and much has been written about this, um, people are living in ever more homogenous, uh, certainly socioeconomically, more homogenous enclaves than they used to. Um, and above a certain income level, more, kid, more people are sending their kids to private schools that while those schools will make stabs in the, in the direction of certain kinds of diversity are really fairly homogenous enclaves. Um, so in those big and small geographic ways, yes, we are being walled off from uh, challenging uh, different perspectives. Um, and any time you're allowed to marinate for longer and with less disruption in your own thinking, you are going to become less open to the idea that other modes of thinking have any merit to them. That's I mean, look at the way, I mean, to, to look at this election, I mean, I go back to the basket of deplorables because I don't want to be someone who's, who's, who sounds like he's not finding fault all across the political spectrum. Um, you can't dismiss Donald Trump's voters that way. I have family members who voted for Donald Trump. You know, I know many different kinds of people who voted for Donald Trump, and they're not all racist. They're not all homophobes. Um, people vote for complicated reasons. They rank different things in different orders of priority. But if we talk about each other in those sorts of extraordinarily derogatory terms, we're never going to be able to talk to each other. And no, and, and no I will not tell you which family members voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> Uh, I suspect you're not one of those, uh, yeah. No, I... You, you've used the verb marinade. I said family members, not self. Not ah, self. good. <laughs> you've used the verb marinade twice today in the well, presentation. Well, I'm, I'm a food guy. Exactly. Yeah. So, now, none of, now none, none of the meatloaves in a meatloaf in every oven requires excessive <laughs> marination. They're very easy to make. Sorry. So how, how was it to move from a food critic to a, an op-ed columnist for the Times? What caused that shift? And the amount of subjective passion people bring to restaurants and food is a fantastic preparation for writing about politics. <laughs> That's good. I wish, I wish you had time to spend a few days here in Minneapolis. We've got a lot of great restaurants. Let me ask you about uh, kind of projecting into the future. Uh, what are the, the scenarios uh, in terms of the spread of misinformation and, and the consequences of that five, ten years down the line for our politics, for our national life together in both a, a kind of a negative way and perhaps a more affirming way? You know, I don't know because it's hard for me to see how it could get much worse in terms of the amount of, you know, mutual reciprocal suspicion that exists between different viewpoints, different parties. Um, 
A part of me believes that something that gets to a point, to a nadir or a summit, or however you want to categorize it, um, eventually there is a pendulum swing. And I'm kind of waiting and hoping and sort of thinking we'll see one here, because I don't think, I don't think if you extrapolate out where we are now, um, in terms of these filter bubbles, in terms of the way people feel about their, their opponents, even the fact that they feel their opponents, I don't think that's sustainable. Um, but I can't script for you what's going to happen. I really don't know. I'm watching as, with as much um, curiosity and trepidation as you are. Mm -hmm. And what is it that individuals like us, citizens who consume news and, and design news apparently, what, what can we do to, to move in a more positive direction? Well, I mean, the way you consume news is a big thing because, again, that is registered in real time and that actually has immediate effect on the news you're given because, you know, all sorts of websites, all sorts of um, TV stations are adjusting. I mean, people during the, during the campaign, there were all of these complaints about how much TV time Donald Trump was getting, right? He was getting that TV time because people were not turning the channel when he was on, and if John Kasich came on, they were turning the channel. Um, it was not, it, no, no small group of people in some tiny room decided this is what you're gonna get. They were watching the numbers, they were reacting to the audience. Now, it is part of our responsibility in the news business not merely to react to the numbers, but we all need to make money in order to give you anything at all. Um, and so I know I'm repeating myself in this regard, but the most powerful thing you can do is consume information, consume television, consume websites, et cetera, in a manner that is constructive for the kind of discourse you want to see the country have, um, and that rewards the kind of people who are the shepherds of, the, of that discourse, and not the people who are circuit, circus acts and entertaining. I know many people who can't stand and couldn't stand Donald Trump, and they were the ones never changing the channel. Because on some weird level, it was all very amusing. Amusing because it you know, got their uh, you know, got their passions up or whatever, but you, they were doing something that was rewarding him and that was destructive by never changing the channel because that's why he kept getting put on TV. Yesterday, the phrase gray cloud was used to describe the kind of uh, coverage that's over our nation in terms well, I think, of intelligence. I think Devin Nunes said it at the end exactly. of the day. He said there was a gray cloud over the Trump administration. Yes, yeah. he did. Uh, you've you've we don't have a gray cloud over us here. No. Well, you've described a, a gray cloud really over America in terms of misinformation. Our, your last response, if you could, are you, are you hopeful about America? You know, um, yes, y I, y yes. <laughs> I'm, ho I'm hopeful because I don't want to be anything else and because I tell you, I mean, we're standing here today. All these people came because they want to kind of think about things other than just themselves. They want to think about the body politic. They want to think about the direction the country is going in. Um, you invited me, not knowing what I'd say, but figuring, hey, at least some ideas will be put out there, and maybe that'll get us somewhere. People, there are still so many people of good intention, um, and there's so damn much talent in this country that I, <laughs> I'm hopeful because I don't think even Donald Trump can screw it up. Yeah.